Hello, everyone, and welcome to New Consciousness Review. I'm Miriam Knight, and our guest today is Robert Steele. Robert is a former CIA clandestine services case officer, as well as a Marine Corps infantry and intelligence officer for 20 years. Since 1988, when he left the clandestine service to create the Marine Corps intelligence activity, he advocated for intelligence as decision support reform and the use of open source intelligence. As CEO of the Earth Intelligence Network, he has led a team in creating practical concepts for restoring power to the public. Robert curates Phi Beta Iota, the public intelligence blog whose motto is truth at any cost lowers all other costs. He is the author of eight books, including Intelligence for Earth, Clarity, Diversity, Integrity, and Sustainability, and the one we will address today, the Open Source Everything Manifesto, Transparency, Truth, and Trust. Welcome, Robert. I'm so pleased you could join us. Oh, thank you for inviting me. Now, as a spy and senior secret intelligence professional for 20 years, what led you to decide to dedicate the rest of your life to changing the system? Well, I had never realized what a fraud I was until I created the Marine Corps Intelligence Center. And I had the best possible equipment with access to all possible available secrets for all of my analysts. And over in one corner, I had a little PC connected to the Internet. And back in 1988, the Internet was the source. Inside of two weeks, my analysts were lining up for the PC and the Internet and rejecting uh, their fancy equipment and their full access to every secret that the U.S. government had. And I asked them why, and they said, because there's nothing in the secret databases about Burundi, Haiti, Somalia, and all the other places that the Marine Corps is likely to go to. And that's when I realized that our government secret intelligence world is really not very intelligent, and mm -hmm. it does not know... Uh, 90% of what we need to know. So that's when I started the open source intelligence fight. And that morphed later on into open source everything. You actually had a competition with um, a whole team of intelligence analysts. Um, and you won. It was actually me against the entire intelligence community, not just another team. <laughs> and yes, I did win decisively. Wow. Wow. So uh, tell us what the cost of the secret intelligence apparatus is to the U.S. taxpayer, and then who actually benefits from all of this expenditure? Well, the cost, depending on what you count, is anywhere from 80 to $120 billion a year. And I will cite General Tony Zinni, who was then the commanding general of the Central Command, which was in the middle of two wars and over 12 executive actions, which is like small wars. General Zinni is on record as saying that when he was commander of the Central Command, he got at best 4% of what he needed to know from secret sources and methods. And the whole point of my, my last 25 years has been to try and teach people that 90 to 95 percent of what they need to know is open source, but it's generally not on the Internet and it's in a language that we don't speak. 183 languages is what I work in when I have to. 27 to 29 is the norm 
for those who are professional, which does not include the U.S. intelligence community. Um, the bottom line on the intelligence community is that it's there as a pork pie. It's there as a secret, unaccountable way to spend a lot of money to enrich congressmen with 5% kickbacks and to enrich the banks and the corporations that sell technology that we don't need and can't use and, and that produces nothing of real value. Um, so I'm sorry to say, because I believe deeply in the intelligence profession, I believe deeply in the military profession. They're both corrupt to the bone. You have a uh, definition of intelligence uh, that is different from what we normally think of when we hear the term as as being decision support as opposed to um, spying. Fine. Well, that's correct. And and one of the one of the terrible things. I mean, when Harry Truman created, when President Harry Truman created the Central Intelligence Agency. He never intended for it to become a monster, nor did he, of course, ever intend for NSA to do mass surveillance against U.S. citizens and blackmail politicians and do insider trading based on stealing secrets from Wall Street. Um, he created CIA to become like a central objective news agency that could take all of the information available to the government and make sense out of it. Make sense out of it. And what happened very quickly is that the Cold War, which was started by Lockheed Martin, not by the Russians, the Cold War became a way for the military-industrial complex to keep the money moving. And it was listening to one of the NSA whistleblowers, Benny, at Hackers on Planet Earth a few years ago, that I heard him say that when Thin Thread, which was a proper way of doing business, lost out to Trailblazer, which was an SAIC multi-billion dollar failure and boondoggle, he realized that the NSA was not in the business of solving a problem and actually producing intelligence or decision support. He realized that NSA was in the business of keeping the problem alive in order to keep the money moving. And so I've written several articles recently apart from my books and many other articles in the past. And two of them I, I draw to your reader's attention, actually three. Intelligence for the president and everyone else is the first one. And then on defense intelligence, seven strikes is the second. And both of those are in counterpunch. And then I put out a very, very tough article that abolishes NSA and the National Reconnaissance Office and makes some major changes. That's called Rebuilding National Intelligence, a 12-step plan. Um, that would also abolish the office of the director of national intelligence, which is absolutely worthless bureaucracy. Um, so decision support is something we all need. When we're buying a new car, one of the things we want to know is what's the, what's the uh, miles per gallon. Uh, some of the things that we don't really know that we want to know, but that we should know, is how much virtual water is there in this product? How much child labor is in this product? How much uh, tax avoidance? What are the toxins that are released into our baby's mouth when we buy this product for a baby? I mean, a lot of the stuff that the United States allows to be sold here is so substandard, it's forbidden in Europe. And these are what I call true costs, true cost economics, pioneered by uh, Dr. Uh, Herman Daly, uh, author of Ecological Economics. So decision support for me is about making sure that all relevant information is placed before the public person when they're making a decision, uh, or in the case of the intelligence community, is placed before the person making the decision on buying an airplane, 
going to war. I mean, the last four or five wars that we've gone to have been on the basis of hundreds of lies, not on the basis of professional intelligence. Um, so we have we have a government that's out of control, and we also have a public that's very ignorant. And I'd like to be at the intersection of fixing both of those things. I remember that uh, Dwight Eisenhower was famously quoted as saying, beware the military-industrial complex. Uh, obviously, he had good reason for saying that. Um, I, I'd like to point out to our listeners that um, Robert is the number one Amazon reviewer of nonfiction books and is a prodigious reader. He makes me pale by comparison. Um, so you're... Um, you're well, let me just say that started by accident. <laughs> uh, when Amazon first started its review feature, I had my first two books already done. And each of those books had 150 um, entries in, in their respective annotated bibliographies. So I loaded 300 reviews, one paragraph reviews over a weekend, weekend of the 4th of April, 2000. And I was instantly a top 1,500 reviewer. Uh, I then went on to just, uh, I I used to, back when I had money, I used to spend $5,000 a year on books. And I used to read two books a week, uh, uh, at least. Um, And so that added up. And I've got over 1,900 reviews now. In 98 categories, I'm, I'm not the number one reviewer for everything because there are a lot of people that review software and movies and novels and stuff like that. But I am the number one reviewer who focuses exclusively on nonfiction. And I also want to say for your listeners that like to read and, and like to explore books, Phi Beta Iota uh, allows you to read all of my reviews in any given uh, one of the 98 categories, for example, general education or university education or information society or corruption, whatever. So at Phi Beta Iota, you can go down and find the uh, book reviews page or you can use the categories bar and you can select whatever category you want. And you'll find anywhere from from 20 to 200 books with that label. And it's uh, it's a great way to spend time without spending money. Uh, you might mention to the readers that this actually is a website, phibetaiota.org? No, dot .net. phibetaiota.net. It's like Phi Beta Kappa, but with the iota for intelligence. <laughs> right. Okay, let's get back to open source uh, everything. What do you mean by open source everything? Well, I'm glad, of course I'm glad you asked. One of the things that I realized when I migrated, and I have to give Tom Atlee, uh, founder of the Co-Intelligence Institute, a lot of credit, because when I uh, when I lost my business to, to government misbehavior, um, I started wandering in the wilderness. And one of the things I discovered was the collective intelligence crowd that's based between Portland and California. And I started to realize that there was an open source ecology out there. And over time, as I watch people talk about open software, open hardware, open data, open government, it suddenly came to me that all of these opens have to be developed together or they will be isolated by proprietary interests and special interests and they will be killed one at a time. For example, open data requires open software and open hardware. Otherwise, all you're doing is feeding the proprietary software and hardware industries. Similarly, open government is not real unless there's open software, open hardware, open data. 
Uh, similarly, if you have a community that is trying to achieve cost-effective access to the Internet and it's trying to make sure that it's not being ripped off by, by carriers and, and others, then you need open-based transceiver station, which is a, a free cell phone. Cell phones are basically really cool ham radios. Um, you need open spectrum. You need the ability to have an open cloud for the community. And you, you essentially need to have an Internet that cannot be censored or shut down by anybody else. So when I wrote the Open Source Everything Manifesto, and I give Daniel Pinchbeck credit for the title. I originally had something more obscure. The Open Source Everything Manifesto is at root about returning the power to the public. It's about ending the fencing of the commons. It's about ending the criminalization of normal personal behavior. Uh, and it is about essentially putting the people back in touch with all of the knowledge that they need and all of the tools that they need in order to demand that governments and corporations and banks be honest, which they are not today. The extent of the lack of integrity, which one certainly senses from the news and from the few scandals that actually do make it to the media, uh, but the extent was something that I never appreciated until I read your book. It is absolutely gobsmacking. You're right. And, and frankly, I didn't appreciate it either. I mean, I very naively, until about a decade ago, I actually thought the New York Times was supposed to be printing the news that was fit to print. And what I've realized, in fact, when I was a minor millionaire, I put in $10,000 into a pool to buy full-page ads against the Iraq War. I and my colleagues at CIA all knew that there were no weapons of mass destruction in Iraq, that the Saddam Hussein had uh, kept the cookbooks, destroyed the stocks, and he was bluffing for regional influence sake. And his son-in-law that defected told us that. All the line crossers that went into Iraq to interview people, relatives that were in the program, told us that. We knew for a fact there were no weapons of mass destruction. But when I and several others offered money for full-page ads to the New York Times, the Washington Post, and the Los Angeles Times specifically, they refused our money, calling our, our uh, intent unpatriotic. And he's, this is what happened to the Dixie Chicks mm -hmm. when they put their career on the line by criticizing George Bush and, of course, Dick Cheney, who played George Bush like a fiddle, um, in London. The fact is the U.S. public, and I have a lot of faith in the, in the larger U.S. public, but the vocal U.S. public seems to be made up of morons whose opinions are spoon-fed to them by the Koch brothers, um, or worse, Acorn. Uh, and so it's really troubling to me. I wrote, I did a book, a fast book called Election 2008, Lipstick on the Pig, and all of my books are free online. Um, but in that, I wrote a, a preface called Paradigms of Failure. And I've identified eight information sharing and sense-making networks that comprise a society. And I'll just list them alphabetically. Every single one of them has lost its integrity completely. So academia, less than 1% of science is produced. Most uh, published work has little cabals of citation uh, uh, exchanges. They don't actually go out and read everything in other languages. So academia has failed. Civil society has failed. I find most NGOs are frauds. They're actually just there to, to keep jobs for the people that founded them. 
Um, then you have uh, – and religion and labor, of course. Labor has failed completely in the United States and religion has become toxic. Uh, beyond the civil society of commerce, uh, the U.S. Chamber of Commerce now owns the U.S. Supreme Court. You have uh, government, which has completely lost all integrity. The lies that Senator Kerry is telling about uh, Syria and, and Ukraine today shame every American. And I don't know if he knows their lies. One of the problems that we have is it's impossible for people who know the truth to actually connect to the Secretary of Defense or the Secretary of State. They are literally prisoners in their own home, surrounded by a small cabal that screens their mail. Not just their mail at, at the office, but their mail at home. They have what are called mail traps. So Senator Kerry and Senator Hagel will never in a million years get something from somebody outside who is trying to break through the barriers and actually tell them what the truth is. Um, so then you have beyond government, you have law enforcement. The FBI hasn't done anything serious in, in the public interest in the last 20 years that I have observed. Uh, I think of them more as a mix of a theatrical agency and an elite protective service. Uh, then you have media, the military, um, and non, non-government nonprofits. Uh, so from where I sit, all eight of the information networks upon which a normal citizen should rely for information and sense-making, they're all broken, very, very badly broken. You say that education is the root of a re root requirement of a democracy. Um, how do we go about providing that education? You know, it's not an easy, it's not an easy answer. I certainly recommend that everybody read uh, John Gatto's Weapons of Mass Instruction. Um, he's a brilliant teacher and, and he would have a role in my cabinet if, if I could ever get enough people to pay attention to all of this. You actually I, ran for president briefly. I, I did. I was unemployed at the time and it seemed like a good idea. <laughs> um, but I ran for president for two reasons. The first was to, was to put all of the good ideas that I had collected from other people in one place. And I did that at bigbatusa.org. Um, and the good ideas boiled down to electoral reform, a balanced budget, a coalition cabinet, and an end to all taxes, replacing them with the automated payment transaction tax. And, of course, end the Fed and full employment. Um, running a government is not hard if you have integrity. It's only hard if you're trying to keep track of all the lies you've told. Um, and I believe that Occupy failed because Occupy wasn't willing to focus on electoral reform. Electoral reform, if we restore the, the integrity to our electoral process, and, and the, the, the main thing I learned running for president, which I had to run for president to learn this, is that we live in a two-party tyranny. It's not a democracy. And this two-party tyranny is deliberately blocking the other six accredited parties, Constitution, Green, Libertarian, Natural Law, Reform, Socialist, and, of course, the Independents. Over 50% of the U.S. voting public is literally disenfranchised. And I find that just astonishing. And, and people don't seem to realize that, that, that they've become not just wage slaves, but slaves to an ideological two-party tyranny that spends money based on who receives the money, not based on who paid the money. Um, now, that's I, another point you, that you made that I'd like to bring out, which was that uh, earmarks are really uh, 
ways for the legislators to enrich themselves. Well, this is this is nothing new. Um, but what's what's new for me is that five percent is the standard. What's new for me is that the legislators literally know nothing about the issues that they're voting on. They're simply voting the party line. I, I believe Congress. Well, first off, I think democracy ended in America with the assassination of John F. Kennedy and the very, very obvious cover-up led by Lyndon Baines Johnson. Um, but then the next big uh, step, that was the end of the presidency. The end of Congress is told in a wonderful book called The Power and the Ambition, and it's about how Newt Gingrich set out to destroy Speaker Wright. Up until that time, Congress had been relatively bipartisan and had honored Article I of the Constitution in which Congress is responsible for balancing the power of the presidency. It's responsible for the power of the purse, the power to declare war, and so forth. And what Gingrich successfully accomplished was the end of bipartisanship, the end of Article I in the Constitution, and he essentially converted the Democratic and uh, Republican um, uh, representatives and senators into foot soldiers for the party. And depending on which party held the White House, then they would be given a role to play. They would be told how to vote. Uh, and they stopped dead. I mean, let me take an example with Senator John Kerry, because that really, really bothers me. He was on the verge of making major inroads on Iran-Contra, and he stopped his investigation cold. Um. He stopped his investigation cold because the two-party tyranny leadership was frightened by where this was going. And they agreed that it would be best to shut down the investigation. Kerry received a phone call asking him to shut down the investigation. He agreed. And one of his aides who was present asked him, why did you do that? He said, because that just guaranteed me a place on the ticket in X number of years. So he sold out the American public on Iran-Contra for a place on the ticket in X number of years. This happens every single day in Washington. And this is, this is, I think, getting very, very close to a cataclysmic meltdown. This is a small point, but one that also impressed me. You quote uh, the U.S. Justice Department as justifying um, lying to... The Supreme Court. Uh, the Supreme Court. They've actually, the Department of Justice is on record in writing, informing the Supreme Court that it has the right to lie to the court in cases of national security. And, of course, they're the ones who define national security. And you, you say that uh, classifying documents is, is kind of a, a, a classic way to just avoid uh, having issues come to the knowledge of the public? Well, I'm not sure anyone really cares about the public anymore. Uh, what we have, and, and again, I have, to, I have to always, always say that I consider 95% of the U.S. government to be good people trapped in a bad system. Um, what we have now, and I was in the front row listening to Daniel Ellsberg and Edward Snowden uh, speak at Hackers on Planet Earth in New York City on the 19th of June. And one of the things that Ellsberg pointed out, which I think I've become increasingly aware of, and, and, and I plan to become more strident about this, <laughs> more is strident? treason. Oh, this is me being nice. <laughs> um, 
Treason is committed in Washington every day in two different forms. The first form, the Dick Cheney form, is, is telling blatant lies and doing whatever it takes to get your way, irrespective of the fact that it is severely injurious to the public interest. Um, I mean, most people don't realize this, but, but when Cheney invaded Iraq, he didn't realize that the majority were Shiites loyal to Iran. And Dick Cheney is going to go down in history as being Iran's best friend. He literally liberated the Shiites in Iraq so that Iran can expand. Now, I happen to like the Iranians and admire the Iranians, but I don't think that the people who know and love Dick Cheney ever signed up to have him make Iran more powerful. Um, now, the second kind of treason is treason by silence. And this is the treason that Dick Cheney, I mean, that uh, Daniel Ellsberg was addressing in his comments in New York City. Every one of us that serves the public swears an oath to defend and support the Constitution against all enemies, domestic and foreign. And where we have all failed, good people trapped in a bad system, is in the false dichotomy that I just read in an exchange between a military officer, retired military officer, and one of my favorite authors, Hal Burgle at IEEE uh, Computer. And the guy was saying, look, we in the military have two choices. We can obey or we can resign and complain. And as I was advising Hal, that's not correct at all. There is a third choice. You are expected to refuse illegal orders. You are expected to denounce illegal orders. You are expected to report and call for the impeachment of senior officers up to and including the president and the attorney general when they issue illegal orders. That's not happening. It didn't happen under Bush Cheney. It's not happening under Obama Biden. But there is not a culture of acknowledging this. There, there's a culture of you're either with us or you're against us. Well, that's true. And I think that the, the, the two party tyranny has managed to, to get its rank and file extremists to believe that. Uh, I mean, we have substituted idiocy for intelligence in this country, uh, at least in the political system. Uh, and when I read, you know, I, I'll look at Mother Jones and, and, um, Slate and a few other things and, one of the things that I notice about all of these rags that purport to be in the public interest is none of them make sense. None of them have a coherent architecture for actually looking at the 10 high-level threats to humanity, the 12 core policies, the eight demographics, the true cost of everything. They're all literally little theater plays. And their job is to get people to think that they're just enough of a do-gooder that they deserve funding and support and keep them alive. But in fact, they're a sideshow. They're irrelevant to the future of this country. You're putting me in mind of The, the Daily Show with Jon Stewart. Um, mm. I, I have heard that he is allowed to uh, do his thing to kind of act as a safety valve for the the pressure is building up. Well, I think that's absolutely correct, and he, and and uh, and I believe the same is true of Bill Moyer, mm -hmm. who's the best of the servant class. Um, Moyer will never cross the line. In fact, I'm not sure why, but I've been banned from commenting on uh, Bill Moyer's website. And if I ever 
have enough authority so that he desperately needs something from me. I plan to ask him why. Um, but for me to be banned from Bill Moyer's website is, in my view, an indictment of Bill Moyer. Hmm. Well, how do we actually achieve the informed public that that is needed for an activist democracy? I believe it's beginning to happen. And again, I give huge credit to Tom Attlee and Jim Ruff, who wrote Society's Breakthrough. And there's a number of people that have really pioneered this whole idea of collective intelligence. The problem so far in my mind, has been that the the democratic activists in the United States have been too focused on holding hands and singing Kumbaya, and they haven't been ready to do their homework. They haven't been ready to occupy the home offices of senators and representatives. I actually got to Occupy in New York City, and I did a six-minute presentation to their Electoral Reform Committee, which went viral when it made the front page of Reddit. If you look up Robert Steele's six minutes Electoral Reform, you'll get right to it. Um, and the point that I made to them was that they had to occupy the home offices of the senators and representatives to Congress and demand electoral reform as the public's singular demand. And I'm quite certain that this is a doable do. I mean, imagine a general strike. Uh, what is not happening, though, is that people are not coming together. Uh, it, it really troubles me because I actually, the other reason I ran for president was so that I could send a letter to all of the other presidential candidates as a presidential candidate, inviting them to come together in an electoral reform summit and make electoral reform the singular issue. Uh, I mean, if I were running for president again, the point that I would make is that my sole purpose in running is to make every American voice count again. Uh, the problem with all of these people that are running for presidents, whether it's Rocky Anderson for the Justice Party or Jill Stein or Gary uh, Johnson, I let Gary drive my MGB in, in New Hampshire. I mean, I love all of them. They're all good people who deserve a place on my cabinet. Not a single one of them is qualified to be president for the simple reason that they were not willing to come together and focus on electoral reform. If you're not willing to give your life so that every American can have their vote restored, you don't deserve to be president. And what would be the outcome of um, restoring the, the votes of every American? I mean, um, are you suggesting that there are vast uh, swaths of Americans who, if enfranchised, would totally shift the political landscape? Well, absolutely. I mean, today, today, our senators, well, first off, I believe that senators should represent the states. We should stop electing senators. They should be appointed by the states as originally envisioned by the founders. As for the representatives, they're supposed to be representing their constituents. But the two-party tyranny has essentially uh, gerrymandered and financed in perpetuity uh, office holders. I mean, I would go so far as to say we would be better off picking people to serve in Congress the way we pick jurors, by lot. Um, and with term limits for, for both Congress and staff. But the bottom line here is that Congress, in fact, the U.S. government does not represent the U.S. public today in any way, shape, or form. The executive does not represent the public interest. The Supreme Court does not represent the public interest. And Congress most assuredly is so divorced from the public interest as to be considered um, inimical, uh, hostile uh, to the future of the republic. 
what would happen if you restored the vote is that representatives would again become responsive to their constituents. You would have tightly drawn computer districts. In fact, I was very pleased that my electoral reform initiative attracted stakeholders from across the United States of America. And we came together and we created an 11-point electoral reform act. And those 11 points can all be found spelled out at BigBatUSA.org under electoral reform. From where I sit, it's not too late for Obama to save his, his presidency. I understand one-third of Americans believe he should be impeached. Um, I don't share that view because I think impeachment is a filthy process that just destroys what little we have left. Uh, but I would like to see Obama reconnect with his integrity. I would like to see him sponsor electoral reform, and I'd like to see him sponsor national security reform. Um, do you like believe? The, do you believe that he had integrity when he was elected, and he was beaten down by the realities of working within the system? I'm not sure. I'm told that Jimmy Carter cried his heart out in the Oval Office when it was explained to him that he wasn't really president. Um, what has happened since Kennedy is that the cabal has had the power to assassinate anyone who does not play their game. And presidents have chosen to go along rather than fight it. Um, I believe that Obama was a very naive young man who was raised by parents who were employed by the CIA. I believe his citizenship was renounced at some point in Indonesia. Uh, but he is our president today. It is what it is. And I actually had a bumper sticker made up one time that said, free Obama. Uh, because the fact is, he is a prisoner in the White House. And Joe Biden is his Delaware state minder uh, on behalf of the corporations. Um, I think Obama, you know, I like to I like to tell my black friends that I have no problem with the black half of Obama. It's the white half that pisses me <laughs> off. Um, because essentially he's a conflicted man. I think he's a very smart person. And and assuming that he has, in fact, graduated from Columbia and has a degree in constitutional law, I have to ask myself, how on earth could this be this guy be giving Nazis a good name? Um, with everything that he's doing in the United States. I mean, his attorney general has set the lowest standard in history uh, for an attorney general of the United States. Um, Obama can still be saved. Everybody can still be saved. I'm huge on truth and reconciliation. I don't have a vindictive bone in my body. All I want to do is restore public agency. Mm. What do you think actually happened to the Occupy movement? Why did it fizzle? Well, there's some people that think that the Occupy movement was, in fact, uh, uh, sponsored um, as a test case for federalizing police and as a test case for getting ready for a revolution with real pitchforks. One of the things I would point out is that in the aftermath of, uh, of the Wall Street high crimes against humanity, a tiny handful of bankers and none from Goldman Sachs or Citibank or Morgan have gone to jail. Fewer than five that I know of. Over 7,000 Occupy people were sent to jail. Now, I'm very, very concerned by plans that are in place to federalize local law enforcement and lock down cities. Boston was a, the Boston bombing was a drill. It was a practice session at locking down an entire city. Um, 
So I, I believe that Occupy had a lot of potential, but I'm not so sure that Occupy failed because it was just a test case. I think Occupy failed because it couldn't get its act together. Um, and I, I really tried very hard to get Occupy to understand that electoral reform was how it could manifest its power. Mm-hmm. Now, you have a couple of initiatives on the web. You mentioned your Phi Beta Iota website. Tell us about the global brain and the global uh, game. Well, when I had money, I funded the start of the Earth Intelligence Network, and we had 24 people, including Medard Gabel, who, who was the co-creator with Buckminster Fuller of the Analog World Game. And I funded his developing the architecture for a digital Earth game. Uh, in fact, I funded his trademarking that term, Earth game, but, but let's call it global game. A digital global game would be a way in which you could interact with the true costs of every product, every service, every behavior, every policy. You could play yourself and vote on every issue. I just want to point out to my listeners that uh, even though we've been carried away with talk of of, uh, political corruption and and, uh, corporate corruption, um, you actually have a, a deeper, wider overview of the complex systems that go into planet Earth. And you're calling for us to actually focus on what you were just mentioning, the true cost of human activities and human commerce. And the, the, somebody at some point down the line is going to hand us the bill to pay that. Oh, they're going to hand our children the bill. Um, we are being terribly irresponsible. And, and, and uh, I mean, there's already reports now that we'll be out of clean water by 2040. Now, I happen to believe that there's some major advances being made in, in solar energy. And I think free energy is right around the corner. And the only thing keeping us from free energy right now is corporate resistance and government corruption. Um, what can be done today with solar, concentrated solar power and, um, and cold nuclear fusion, which does not produce the waste products, uh, and all forms of renewable energy is nothing short of astonishing. It's, it's a Manhattan project made true. But political and financial corruption are holding all of us back. And if I had to do my life over again, I think 25 years ago, I wish I had moved to Maine to a small sea, uh, seaport and basically helped that seaport go completely off the grid, nullify all federal regulations and, and rebuild in a green, sustainable fashion from the ground up with, of course, a heavy emphasis on health and organic food and, and so forth. Uh, and then let the oil spot theory take over. Um, what I and Mikkel Bowens and others are, are really learning is that governments are so corrupt on the one hand and so chaotically disorganized on the other that it's not really possible to hack a country. I'm not even sure you can hack a public. Uh, uh, explain what you mean by hack. Well, hackers are like astronauts. They're pioneers with the right stuff. They're pushing the edge of the envelope. The first hackers came out of MIT and include Richard Stallman, uh, the founder of the free software movement. Um, essentially, a good hack is if someone has written a, a series of 10 lines of code that does something specific and you can do it in eight, that's a good hack. You've reduced two lines of code. Um, my next to last chapter is called um, 
the ultimate hack, reinventing intelligence to re-engineer Earth. Uh, and what really troubles me is that in, in the corporate system plus the corrupt educational system plus the corrupt media system plus the corrupt government plus the failure of labor and religion to actually represent their constituencies, all of these come together, leaving the people as relatively stupid, inert consumers uh, who have no idea that they're being asked to eat their own shit um, and, and, and pay for it. Uh, so I really – I'm not sure how this is going to happen, but I do have a strong feeling that our Tunisian fruit seller is right around the corner. Mm-hmm. You're a big fan of Barbara Marks Hubbard. Uh, <laughs> yes, I, that's a grand dame who should have been vice president. <laughs> And the notion of conscious evolution, where do you see that going? Some of us will survive. Um, I, don't, I don't want to think of myself as a survivalist. I'm not prepared to be one of these people that moves to Chile and tries to create a, a self-contained community that will survive the Holocaust, the, the man-made Holocaust. Um, I loved your book, Conscious Evolution. It was absolutely superb and, uh, or collapsing consciously. Um, and what I think is happening is that education has migrated out of the schoolhouse factory and into the public sphere. The internet, um, the unconscious transfer of memes, the evolution of memes, Something is going on. I don't completely understand it, but I believe that there is an organic intelligence in, in humanity at large. Um, I do believe that violence is actually going down, even though you have the Israeli atrocities in Gaza and you have the U.S.-sponsored terrorism in the Ukraine and Syria. Um, I think things are getting better. Um, and Jerome Glenn's State of the Future says things are getting better across these all indices. Um, What's missing is a, is a narrative. What's missing, what's missing is a, a flag that everyone can come around. And, and I don't have all the answers. Uh, but I do believe that the United States of America could be saved if the public would wake up, occupy the offices of their elected senators and representatives, and tell them that if they don't pass an electoral reform act, they not only will not get elected, they will never ever um, be allowed to show their face in their community again. So you are building this pyramid of a new society on the foundation of electoral reform. What are the other levels of that pyramid that you see? What, what does electoral reform lead to? Well, the subtitle of the book that you're interested in is called Transparency, Truth, and Trust. Electoral reform enables truth to be pervasive because right now what we have is a two-party tyranny that is kept alive by lies. Uh, It is not only kept alive by lies, it is enabling lies in the Supreme Court and lies uh, in the executive. So electoral reform is actually a way of flushing the stables and making it possible for sunlight and the truth to become the foundation for how we make decisions. 
Um, you know, I like to say there's nothing wrong with America the Beautiful that can't be fixed relatively quickly by restoring the integrity of our electoral and consequently our governance process. Um, governance today, I mean, we're no better than a dictatorship. Governance today has become a means of fencing the commons, criminalizing and disenfranchising everything the, the small little people are trying to do to survive. Um, government is not helping. It's hurting. Um, so, yes, electoral reform for me is foundational. And very candidly, since I have no designs to be in charge of anything, uh, my objective is to get everyone to agree that electoral reform needs to happen and then get out of the way and let an organic process begin to take place. And I will see America bloom again in my lifetime. Do you see any leaders coming forth who could actually spearhead this? The short answer is no. And I loved Lee Iacocca's book, uh, Where Have All the Leaders Gone? Um, we aren't producing leaders because we aren't producing people who are deeply steeped in ethics and humanism. Uh, we're producing technocrats who are out to earn a buck. Uh, we're producing people who are selfish, um, self-centered, uh, focused on the short term, and motivated by money. I mean, these days people are running for Congress not to run for Congress and serve the public, but to qualify for the $700,000 a year lobbyist job immediately thereafter when they get defeated. Um, so, no, I don't see leaders. And, in fact, I'm helping someone write a thesis and um, I'm doing doing um, editing and, and reblocking for them. Uh, and one of the things that I'm finding very fascinating is this whole concept of, of, of leadership as a non-concept. In other words, true leadership is not having someone in charge. True leadership is a committee of the whole. And it's very, very similar to what our indigenous Native Americans used to do. So they'd sit around in a circle and everybody would have their say and they wouldn't break up until the group had agreed. And one of the things that is so interesting about that is that if you do it that way, there are no disgruntled um, uh, spoilers and you actually end up with a sustainable decision. Um, so, no, I don't see any leaders out there. I see a lot of good people, uh, certainly Jill Stein, Rocky Anderson, Gary Johnson. I mean, I, Ron Paul, although Ron Paul has been used to keep the libertarians quiet and out of the way of the Republican Party, uh, Ron Paul and Dennis Kucinich both have a place in the coalition cabinet that I would recommend if someone else were leading this. And, and if I'm leading it as an administrator, then I would certainly have them together. And frankly, I would love to put Ron Paul in as chief justice of the Supreme Court and really stick it to them for the next 10 years. Mm. Do you think Rand Paul has fallen far from the tree? Rand is not the man his father was. He's better in some ways, but I've seen no evidence that he's ready for the ideas that I have put forward. Mm -hmm. And, of course, libertarians are, in fact, fascists when you get right down to it. But it's, it's actually a, a kind of two sides of a coin. On, on the one hand, they want liberty. On the, the other hand, um, they want their kind of liberty and they want to prevent others from having it. Look, I seriously considered running for the libertarian nomination and, and – uh, and I was treated very, very well by the Daily Bell, which did an interview with me. And one of the things that I pointed out is that Austrian economics is out of touch with reality. 
um, because Austrian economics refuses to acknowledge true cost economics. Uh, Austrian economics is nothing more than cover for keep the rich rich. Aus- uh, sorry, Austrian? Austrian economics. That's the foundation of libertarianism. I'm reading, I'm reading a really superb book now, uh, which has not come out in print yet. But it explores the roots of libertarianism, and it, re- it, re- it, it, it really looks closely at the direct connection between fascism, libertarianism, and wealth. Uh, and, of course, the Koch brothers are well aware of how valuable the libertarians are to them. Mm-hmm. Uh, so one of the problems that I see, and the Libertarian Party is the third largest party in the United States, if you don't count the, the independents as a, as a disorganized mob. Um, one of the problems that I see is that too many Americans, including very well-intentioned libertarians, have basically been bamboozled. I personally feel that... Um, we need to really take a hard look at issues like absentee landlordism. I think communities should own their land. And the communities should certainly provide, as they provide in France and Mexico and other places, where if you are occupying the land and you are farming and making something of the land, then you are its virtual owner for your lifetime and into the lifetimes of anyone from your family that continues your good work with the proviso that you cannot sell the land to someone outside the community, and you cannot harm the land. Um, we're really we're really at a point now where I th- I'm seeing a lot about economics. In fact, I'm working on a proposal for for a completely new hundred million dollar institute, which, if it happens, will give me a job, which will be very nice. <laughs> but um, but this new hundred million dollar institute would create a a form of collaborative democratic economic capitalism collaborative economics, uh, and it would be rooted in open source everything, uh, holistic analytics, true cost economics, complete transparency, truth, and trust rather than money as the primary medium of exchange. Um, so I think there's some very exciting things coming down the road, but right now in the United States of America, there are no leaders. There are only money grubbers. Uh, can you leave us with a thought of what might be the one most positive action that we could take as citizens to move in a positive direction? You know, I want to say go on strike, um, a nonviolent public strike. But I don't see that happening. I think people are just too preoccupied. You know that over 35% of, of U.S. citizens right now are facing some kind of collection action. The actual unemployment rate in the United States is 22.4%, according to shadowstats.com, not this fiction of 6 or 7%. So I guess my last word is think. Think. Think for yourself. Yes. All right. Well, uh, could you remind us what your website Certainly, www.phibetaiota.net. Phi, P-H-I-B-E-T-A, I-O-T-A. If you look up Robert David Steele, I'm the number one Robert Steele on Google, so I'm very easy to find. <laughs> okay. uh, and I curate, I curate over 800 contributors at Phi Beta Iota. This is not about me. This is about getting to a collective truth that does some good for all of us. Well... 
Call to action, people. Okay, we've been speaking with Robert David Steele, author of the Open Source Everything Manifesto, Transparency, Truth, and Trust. Robert, thank you very much for being with us today. My pleasure. Remember that all the books we discuss here are found on our website, ncreview.com, along with thousands of other fascinating books and interviews. Next week, our guest will be Gail Thackeray. She will be talking about her book and DVD about the amazing Brazilian healer, John of God. And now we're going to close with our track of the week by Cara Johnstad. It's called You've Got Mail. It's not your face strange It's not your eyes are those so wise It's just this crazy thing As I start to realize It's a photo Suppose All those words that you said That have me checking and checking my mails Caught in this magical spin as I sit real still And as I wait for you To help me out, my dear I know you surprise me Oh, you never do fail Yes, I'm in love with you Now look, you've got some mail That was You've Got Mail by Cara Johnstad, a singer-songwriter, transformational catalyst, author, voice specialist, and owner of Voice Your Essence. Cara empowers audiences around the world with concerts, lectures, workshops, and one-on-one -on -one coaching. Her website is carajohnstad.com. That's K-A-R-A-J-O-H-N-S-T-A-D.com. Cara is a member of our Speakers Bureau, Luminary Voices, and you can find her profile on luminaryvoices.com. She also just joined our brand new platform for audio and video podcasts called the New Consciousness Media Network. The website is ncmedianet.com, and there you will find a variety of fascinating hosts and shows. I'd be interested in knowing what you think, and you can send your comments or questions. Maybe you'd like to join us. Send them to me, miriam at ncreview.com. Well, that's our show for today, and I do hope you'll join us next week. Until then, I'm Miriam Knight for New Consciousness Review. Thank you for listening. Goodbye.